0: Well, James has uh, been a challenge all the way through, and that challenge hasn't ended for us by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Nevertheless, when we get into the passage where we are this morning, as we come down to verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, James does bring a lot of things together for us. And uh, personally, I never understood the concept behind some who would join uh, monastic orders and take a vow of silence. Until I got to this chapter and I realized that for some of us to not be speaking evil against someone else is equivalent to taking a vow of silence because it's virtually the only place we go. The only thing we have to talk about is the negative things about other individuals and that can be uh, increasingly problematic but it would be good for us to go back and do some quick review as we go back, by the way, for those who are wondering, that's not staged. That was a guy in a hurricane, actually. That was, uh, took me a while to find that one. The, um, we come to this closing portion of the whole section, uh, dealing with the tongue and the way that we speak to one another, and as we've already seen, as we've worked through this entire thing, beginning at, at chapter three, we've seen that the, the power of the tongue, especially in destructive terms. And now again, his point isn't that we simply stop using the tongue, but that we start using it for its right purpose. And the purpose is not to harm others, but to bless God and men. And so it's a a reversal of the way that perhaps we're using it now. And we've seen the destructive power of the tongue. We saw it in five especially different ways that James classified it for us. First, it is a world of unrighteousness not just a small aspect of where we are but it has its own universe to it if you will there's a complex reality that surrounds the way that we can talk with one another the second thing that he reminded us of and this is uh, in chapter 3 and verse 6 is that it stains the whole person you can't just step back and say oh well it's just words it's never just words it's what's coming out of our hearts we forget that, that God spoke the worlds into existence, that Christ is the word of God, the expression of God. And we're to be taking on that image, and the question is how much of that image begins to be wrapped up in our eyes in speaking evil of other people. We'll come back to that, of course. That our tongues are set on fire from hell. Matter of fact, it sets our entire lives ablaze with the fire from hell. It doesn't impact just one area of our lives. He tells us also that it is a, a restless evil. It doesn't stop. That we, we continue to pursue this course and, and form our own feeding, feeding frenzy on, sometimes on the characters of others and that it is a, a deadly poison. And all this because we allow it to be used in a double-minded way both to bless God and to curse men. We're under the wrong assumption that we can do that. When Scripture says, no, we can't. No, we have to employ it for its, its right purpose. Now, because all that we've just seen is true, and we see how our speech reveals the inner problem that we have that leads to every conflict and relationship that we've got. at the bottom of all this, We saw that at the beginning of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Well, you desire and do not have. Your passions are at war within you or among you. And so you murder. It comes out. This is a fruit of bitter jealousy. I want what someone else has, and I'm jealous over what they have, and... Conflict occurs. I want A, you want B, and now the next thing you know, we're at war with one another. And then the the second aspect of that, you covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Selfish ambition. If I haven't gotten what I want, then I'm going to do whatever it takes to get what I want. So, honey, what I want you to do is I want you to take the garbage out on Thursdays, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get my desire met. Or, sweetie, I want you to do the laundry more regularly, and I will do whatever it takes to get my desire met. Those are simple things. Home things. Every relationship. And yet, this is exactly what he's dealing with. The Christian must fundamentally be different at home in everything we do. In every attitude. And you say, well, you know, it's one thing for me to bicker with my kids over this or bicker with my boss over that. It's another thing when we talk about theology. No, it covers all areas. It covers all areas. And that's the whole point. This is the source of quarrels and fights. But then he moves us on from that, from these battling desires that we have which, of course, comes down to the fact that our initial goal, our chief goal, isn't Christ's kingdom, his agenda. It's our personal agenda. The only reason I'm ever rankled at somebody else is because they aren't fulfilling my agenda. I never get too upset about them not fulfilling God's agenda or anybody else's, but that's exactly where the problem is because we're focused on getting ours through rather than his, which is to build the kingdom of Christ. When we, do, when we do seek what we want from him, often, as James mentions in this chapter, we find him unwilling to give us what we ask for because the, the truth is we, we don't have regard for his agenda in our asking. It's a complete reorientation of life. It's back to chapter 1. Double-mindedness is trying to live two agendas, God's agenda and mine. And conflict comes from those two competing realities And my agenda has to go by the wayside. What has God made me for? What has he created you and I to be in this world? And when we're focused on that, we are much less focused about how other people do or don't fit into our projections. He's going to come back to that next week in an entirely different context, God willing, when we take up uh, picking up in verse 13. So what's to be done? How are we to handle all this? What's James's comment to us been so far? Well, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There is isn't this a humility of surrendering my agenda to God's agenda. What does this have to do with my growth in Christ, which is the first part of the kingdom, Bringing the lost to the saving knowledge of Christ, which is the second part of of expanding the kingdom. And then thirdly, helping one another grow in Christ. The third aspect of growing the kingdom. How does it fit into that? And if that isn't the priority, then I need to back up and say, okay, how have I gotten things out of whack? Let me come back and put that in its proper order. And that takes humility. It takes taking me off the throne and putting Christ and his agenda back on the throne where it belongs. I can't think of a better picture of that, a better way of, of telling you this, if I can use it in one coin, humble adoration, that brings us to this place. When we think of humility in human terms, we often think in terms of degrading ourselves. But of course, that's not humility. Humility. Spending all your time telling people how bad you are, how weak you are, how poor you are, how ineffective you are, whatever your brokenness is, that isn't humility. That's pride, but it has chosen what looks like humility in order to still talk about self. The focus is the same. I'm just talking about me, but I'm talking, well, I'm terrible, I'm awful. Well, good. I'm not interested in you. i got bigger things to be interested in. Maybe my focus needs to be on Christ So humility doesn't come from taking a negative view of self. Humility comes from getting a loftier view of God. Of acquainting myself more with His grace, with His glory, with His wonder, with His majesty, with His righteousness. And that will humble you in an instant. The picture here, is one artist's representation of what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like in the Old Testament. We know from the way that it was described to us in in the Decalogue, or in the, uh, the Pentateuch, that on the top of it, which was called the mercy seat, the cover that was over this gold box... The cover here was going to have two cherubim in it and those cherubim were to have their heads bowed and their wings extending toward and they were actually touching one another. This is, this is not the best representation. And the writer to the Hebrews picks up on this imagery when he says that the holy angels desire to look into the things that belong to the redeemed. But their humility doesn't come from degradation. They are holy and sinless. Their humility comes from the exalted view of Christ in his redemptive work. Beloved, the cure for our pride is not to run around thinking evil of ourselves. It is to be consumed with thinking well of our God being consumed with how loving he is, how gracious he is, how just he is, how holy he is, how sovereign he is, how glorious and majestic and wondrous. Nothing humbles the soul better than a vision of something that's so much greater. That's where humility comes from. And that's James. He's saying he gives more grace To the humble. What do I do? I mean, grace is an unmerited gift. It's what he gives me without deserving it. He's saying exactly. Fix your heart and your mind on the wonder of how it is that Christ died for you. And be consumed with, with ferreting out, teasing out every aspect of this unimaginable love and grace. And when your heart is exalted in musing on the wonders of Christ, you'll have little left over to worry about whether or not people are meeting your agenda. Everything shifts. All this comes from an exalted view of who he is and what he is. It's filling ourselves up with the love of Christ once again. Uh, I wasn't going to go there this morning, but if if you've got your Bibles, turn back to Ephesians for just a moment. It's a passage we've looked at before, but it it bears a reminder. Paul makes several prayers in in the book of Ephesians as he's writing this letter to these people. And then he has this, this prayer in chapter three that is just absolutely central to these thoughts. Picking up in verse fourteen of Ephesians chapter three. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is why I'm praying for you, he says, to the one who has authority over all things. The one who names things is the one who has authority over them. It's, a, it's a, a cultural way of them understanding God's authority. That according, verse 16, to the riches of His glory, so on a supernatural level, according to the riches of His glory, infinite glory, He may grant you, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that you can do miracles. No, that isn't what the text says. That you may be strengthened with His power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he teases that idea out. That you... Being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How does one become filled with all the fullness of God? But to be strengthened by His power in the Spirit in the inner man to comprehend the immeasurable wonder and glory of His love. But you know how we bolster ourselves by focusing on the immeasurable faults of those around us. Just the opposite. He brings us to this, to make it our life's goal, to know the nature of His love for us. Does it astound you that Christ has loved you? Does it amaze you that He died in your place and bore the infinite wrath of the living God against you that you justly deserved? Does that even wow you anymore? We can just say the words after a while, can't we? And it just becomes commonplace. It just becomes religious speak as though it's just a given. Well, sure, we get together and we have a good time and we pray and, and golly, I hope Jesus will help me do better at work. And the wonder of salvation is relegated to, boy, he did this so I could have a nicer life. Instead of humbling the soul in utter amazement. Beloved, I think we've lost touch. We're, we're not looking at those things inside the ark where mercy reigns, when we deserved wrath, where grace reigns, when we deserved no none of his blessings, where inside here where the law was that would convict us and, and tell us that we deserved his everlasting punishment. Yet there's a cover where an atonement has been made, where blood has been sprinkled and where we're set free. It's an astounding picture. It's giving up this prideful pursuit of personal pleasure to humbly seek our highest good in the knowledge and experience of his unmerited favor toward us. It's to revel in his love and grace. It's it's to give up stuff in getting a greater revelation of his love and mercy. To be Solely His, seeking our highest delight in Him to the exclusion of seeking it in anyone or anything else. That's humbling. We don't do this much anymore, do we? Even in churches. I think we've come to associate a picture like that with cults or pagan worship. But it's replete in the Scriptures. Where men and women, confronted with the reality of the glory of God, fall on their faces before Him. In the opening section of the Revelation of John, John, who was the the disciple whom Jesus loved, Scripture says, the one who was probably closest to him emotionally. The one who leaned on Jesus' breast. The one who we read no negative words about in the New Testament. This, this John who was uh, the early church referred to him. The earliest, uh, many of the early Greek manuscripts at the beginning of the book of Revelation don't just call it the revelation of John, they call it the revelation of John the theologian this one who who knew the truth of the glory of God, whose whose gospel is so exalted at its beginning and constantly bringing us to grips with the the transcendence of of Christ. This John who knew Jesus so well when he's on the island of Patmos and is suddenly confronted with the risen Christ says, I fell on my face like a dead man. Because the glory Christ was so astounding in that moment. Have you familiarized yourself lately with the glory of Christ? Has it struck you again? How wonderful it is? When, uh, when I met Skye on the internet, I've told you the story that I saw her picture and I figured it was a fake uh, that those kinds of websites, you know, they seed their websites with people that are really beautiful, so that you think there's people like that there, and they get you, they get you hooked in. Uh, because, because girls who looked the way she looked were the kinds of girls that spit on me in high school. So I knew that wasn't going to happen. And then I met her, and. There was, no, there was no immediate gagging. <laughs> there was no screaming and terror. She didn't run in the opposite direction. And I, now after nearly eight years of marriage, I am more amazed now that she married me. Now that I know her and I've lived with her and and watched her and seen her heart before the Lord and, and spent time with she's not here this morning, I can do this. and <laughs> Don't anybody play this for her, please. You can ruin a lot of good things. Um, I am more amazed now that she loves me than, than when I first met her. Are you more amazed now of Christ's love for you than when you first got saved? Then maybe maybe we haven't been spending enough time investigating how great that love is. Going back and just getting that sense, that that reality of how Scripture paints the Savior who stepped out of glory and endured this sinful world when He was so perfect and so holy and then died in our place when He had no guilt of his own and blesses us. Well that, that leads us then in chapter four back to the Spirit's direction in this whole issue of addressing one another. What it looks like. And, and these two verses together have a structure as we've seen with a lot of other passages. James has a very deliberate way that he's laying out the truth here. We want to look at that structure quickly and then go back and tease out each part individually. First, in, 11, in 11a, eleven he, he puts out there, if you will, the what, the command, the, the admonition. And the what is, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then he moves on from that to his first reason why in 11b. Because the one who speaks evil, or speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you're a judge, uh, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then his his second reason why, which is verse 12, And there's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now we need to be careful with this word judge so that we get it right. What he isn't saying is that Christians are to be undiscerning, foolish, gullible. We're to have good judgment. But as we're going to see, the way that he's using the term in this passage is, what we cannot do is use our words to punish people because we want to act as judge, jury, and executioner. We can't carry out sentence like a judge. We can make right determinations. We need to be discerning. What we don't have the authority to do is to punish each other. And that's what he's going to call us back to. That's, that's exactly how he wants to work through this. But let's work through it in in detail. We'll, we'll deal with each one of these um, in a little more depth. So the first thing is, do not speak evil against one another uh, the word that's used there speak evil it's it's one word actually in the greek although we have it in the in two words there in the esv you may have a translation that uses the word slander that's a a reasonable word the problem is that this word covers more than the idea of slander it's a much deeper word uh, in slander we're passing on things that aren't true about somebody in the proper sense of the term. But in the word that he uses here, the issue isn't whether or not the information is true or untrue. The issue is that we're, we're passing it on. It doesn't matter whether it's substantiated or unsubstantiated. The problem is that we're speaking evil. Doug Moo in his commentary, I think, gives a really helpful comment. Speaking evil translates a Greek word... That means literally to speak against. It denotes many kinds of harmful speech. Then he gives three examples. It, it's the example of questioning legitimate authority. That's a fun one for us. Don't speak evil against legitimate authority. It denotes uh, many kinds of harmful speech, questioning legitimate authority, as when the people of Israel spoke against God and against Moses in Numbers 21.5. That would be the same word that was used there. It's used of slandering someone in secret in Psalm 101.5. And in secret simply means that we do it out of the earshot of the individual because we've made someone else our fodder for our discussion. And then also using and bringing incorrect accusations, First Peter 2 and 3, ultimately it boils down to personal attacks on the character and judgmental attitudes toward the individual. And I'm going to come back and, and ask a question when we get to the end of this, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring it out even here and now in the midst of, of our current discussion. And might I say, this is a favorite place for preachers where we mess it up big time where we need to be extremely careful that we're not using our speech in a harmful way against others, especially in the pulpit. I do have to ask myself, when I'm talking with someone and a third person, a third party comes into the equation, will will my discussion lower that other person in the one person's eyes whom I'm talking with? Will it make them seem... Lower in that other person's eyes. If yes, then I need to not do it. I need to just keep quiet. A bigger question is, will it benefit the party that I think is so far off? Am I helping them in any way? And if I can't discern that, then maybe I'd just better let it go for now. And a third question, will it help either one, either the person I'm talking about or the person I'm talking to, will it help either one of them grow in Christ? And if it won't, then I need to not say it. Those are pretty, pretty amazing things, aren't they? They're different than the way we, we normally govern our speech patterns. We need to be careful. Don't speak evil is the first concept against one another, brothers. And then he'll tell us the why. This is his first reason why. And the first is because the one who speaks judges the law to judge in the idea of both to pronounce sentence and in some respect to carry it out how often in christian conversations will this question arise seemingly innocuous but let's see where it takes us can so and so say something like that and really be saved can they do something like that and really be a christian Can they fill in the box and still be saved? And the bottom line is that's not our question to ask. That's not not our department. It's like the other day when I was in the restaurant and I asked for a glass of water and the waitress said, that's not my table. Well, this isn't my table. This isn't my department. I'm not to make that determination. That's not where I have to live. And it's not where you have to live either. It's it's not where Christ would call us to live. And yet, don't we get caught up in those discussions? Don't we get caught up in trying to make those determinations? It's not our question to ask or to discuss or to muse on. It is ours to leave it to Jesus and let him sort that out. Now, we know how church discipline works, and we can deal with persons' actions, and if they remain unrepentant. Scripture's clear on how we deal with that. What we're talking about is... Discussion. Discussion among us. It's not our conclusion to arrive at privately. This comes about when we, we feel the need to see someone punished or censured because the law doesn't seem to be doing the job. You see, that's, that's his language there in the passage. If you, if you take this course, speaking evil against others, you're taking up the law. Matter of fact, you're speaking evil against the law and judging the law. You're, you're in effect saying the law is insufficient. And so I've got to take up the task of bringing this person to justice. I'm going to deal with this. And I'm going to see that the offenders are put in their right place and get their just due. Even if it's, if it's only in discussing it with other people. He says, that's... That's putting ourselves above the law and saying, well, the law is insufficient. God has no rules to deal with this, and therefore we're going to take our own route and deal with this and make it happen on our own. It's, it's Chris, Christian vigilantism. I'm going to take up the cause, and I'm going to see that it's done. I'm going to punish the other person with my words. I'm going to see to it they hurt by what I say. And James is saying, brothers, sisters, that's not ours. We have, a, we have a higher, more joyful, more wonderful calling to be preoccupied with the glory and the blessedness and the wonder of our Christ. Why not invest our hearts and minds there rather than in the filth and the failings of our friends? What a call. This isn't, this isn't bondage. This is freedom. This is getting us out of the mud puddle and back into the temple. It's getting us to, to, to get our eyes and our ears off of those things that are, that are just so unuseful for growing in the, the image of Christ. But then he gives a second reason in verse 12. Matter of fact, he says, not only are you judging the law, you're setting yourself above it and saying the law is insufficient to deal with, with people's sins, with the, the people that I'm dealing with, so I need to you know, kind of jump on the bandwagon, make sure I take care of that by my, my words. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You've, you've, you've set yourself up. But it gets worse. Because the truth is, there is only one lawgiver and judge. And he alone is the one who is able to save and to destroy, not us, him. He's the one. So then he asks and ends with that rhetorical question, but who are you to judge, to be the one who's going to carry out some sort of judgment against your neighbor? Why is that suddenly my role? When God preserves that role for himself. That's the attitude. That's the attitude. I didn't even have to look hard for that. I just Googled, I am God, and that was the first image that popped up. And I said, how'd they get that out of my drawer? But that's where judgmentalism takes us. That's that's where it moves us. That somehow I've got to hold the guard. Somehow I've got to be the, the one responsible for fixing this, for, for hemming the other person in, for, for dealing with all of their, their faults, their failings. I've got to make sure that I take that on myself. Ultimately, we're feeling the need to bring about justice because we really don't believe God will bring about justice. We don't trust Him. James is going to get to that later in the book. He's going to revisit this theme and he's going to say, you know, those of you who are being mistreated by, by your slave owners, keep your eyes fixed on heaven. It's Christ who will deal with them when he comes. You don't have to. You don't have to. You can put away the badge. There's another image that came to mind while I was working through this, but remember the words of Jesus. I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more than they can do. I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Judgment belongs with God, not with us. He takes it out of our hands. Moves it to a whole different, whole different venue. Frees us up from the responsibility of policing the rest of the, the Christians says, how would you like to be free of that responsibility and let me take care of it? Because I always judge justly and perfectly without error. It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Wear the cross and carry the sword at the same time. It's not the church. But it is how... Sometimes we let our minds and hearts go. And we're going to bring it to bear. We're going to bring it about. Ultimately, James is by implication saying that when we enter into this habit of speaking evil against one another, brothers, that we're setting ourselves up above God himself and accusing him of not being able to see that justice is done properly. So we're going to see to it that God's lack is filled up by our discussions with others. But there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who can both save and destroy. And probably sometimes we don't want God to save them, to fix them. Because we'd rather enter into the fray. These are his prerogatives and not ours. Well, how can we summarize all this? It's one thing to recognize another's faults because we're not without discernment and to seek their deliverance from those faults and quite another to make them the topic of discussion, poisoning my hearers, and defaming the person who's being discussed. That's where we need to be careful. It's one thing to understand that other people around me fail. And fail me. Sin against me. They do. They sin against you. And it's one thing to say, I see those, and I want to seek that individual's deliverance from that. And another, to go away hurt, or to go away ticked off, and sit down and poison the ears of some third party, for no reason, and defame the first party in their in their hearing, for what end? James likes to meddle, doesn't he? He likes to bring us back to Christianity one oh one basics, basics. As a matter of fact, this is so basic, it's astounding. Let me give you four questions that came to my mind for guidance in sorting through these issues yourself. So this afternoon, when you're discussing me and this sermon over lunch, I would appreciate it if you would keep these questions in mind. Might be helpful. Four questions for guidance in a way of of helping us kind of work through this that that emerge from the from the structure that we've seen in this in this passage. The first question is, Are my comments aimed at recovery? Am I just complaining about the person, or do I actually have their recovery at heart? That's the first question. Are my comments aimed at at recovery? In other words, is it loving toward them? Am I loving the person I'm wanting to criticize? Because if I'm only criticizing, I'm being the judge. And I'm setting myself up over the law and over God. So I've got to come back and ask the question Are my comments aimed at helping this individual recover? Or, as as we'll hear from another apostle in another place, you see a brother who's overtaken in a fault, restore him in a spirit of humility, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. The aim is recovery, the aim is restoration, the aim is not free season. A second question that might be useful. Are my comments needed to warn someone who may be sinfully injured? There's times when that has to happen. We had it read for us in Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you need to to note this. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much evil. And you need to be aware of him and to beware of him. But then he ends it. He doesn't give details. He doesn't go on, let me tell you what he did to me. And let me tell you how it didn't get handled. None of that. Simple statement. This is a guy who's dangerous. You need to be aware of that. I'm going to give you the warning, and now we're going to move on. He talks about those in that same passage who, when he was being tried in Rome the first time, he said, none of them stood beside me. And may the Lord not lay this to their charge. I don't I don't want to see them hurt over that. It's astounding the attitude that he takes in that. So are my comments needed to warn someone? Is it loving toward my hearer? Does, does my hearer really need to know this? And there are times when, when they do. I would say that that's probably more rare than we want to think. That that may be true. That may be true. Third question. Will my comments advance Christ's kingdom in either person? Am I advancing Christ in the person I'm complaining about? Am I advancing Christ in the person I'm warning to? Will my comments advance Christ's kingdom? Is it loving toward my Savior and what He's trying to do? Is it part of His agenda and what he's accomplishing? Am I, am I moving in that direction, which is his? And then lastly, will my comments enlist aid to recover? Are my comments specifically for the purpose of enlisting the aid of a truly invested party in helping to recover the offender or to warn someone else in danger? I may need to pull another party into this, but what's, what am I after and so it is wrapped up in that one last sentence, isn't it? Is it loving? Is it loving? That's, that's the question. Is it loving? And who's it loving toward? Because I always have a responsibility toward both. The governing principle is given to us in no uncertain terms in 1 Corinthians sixteen 14, isn't it? Let all that you do be done in love. How will this advance the kingdom of my Savior? Is it loving toward Him? How will this advance the kingdom of Christ in the people that I'm going to be speaking to? How will it advance His image in them? How will it advance the kingdom in the person who has sinned or that I'm discussing? And if love hasn't covered that, then my lips need to. Now, This would put talk radio out of business. You'd be stuck. You'd have very few commentators if we functioned on this principle. That might be a good thing. That might not be bad at all. Because it all comes back to the central agenda. What am I after ultimately? Christ's kingdom? Christ's agenda? The advancement of his kingdom through evangelization and sanctification and edification or the advancement of my personal agenda and making sure so-and-so gets their due. After all, I wouldn't want anybody thinking nicely about them. Oh, beloved, I think we may have fallen off the wagon here. It's an easy wagon to fall off of, isn't it? It doesn't seem to have any sides on it. It's one where it's almost unthinking. As as we found with this entire study in chapter 3 and 4, we almost look at complaint about other people and discussions about other people and their faults and and what's going on as though it's a God-given right. And James says, no, you have the right to live above this by the power of the Spirit and love one another. In Christ. That's freedom. That's joy. Any, forgive the term, idiot, can criticize. It takes no skill, although some do it skillfully. It can be done by anybody. But loving one another, edifying one another, purposely helping engage one another to grow in the image of Christ, that's another story. That takes skill. That takes the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will go right back to the more we are immersed in a vision of the glory of Christ and his redemptive work, the more we will be humbled by that, and the more love will flow from us to others around us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for these kinds of admonitions. They're not comfortable. Always. But your word refuses to leave us as is. You are too loving for that. So you will address us in truth to advance the kingdom of Christ within. And how we thank you for that. Lord, be with us as we contemplate these things and take them to our hearts and And seek by the power of your spirit, by partaking of the wonder of your spirit, in illuminating Christ to be made more like him in these very things. In his name we pray. Amen. Give one or two minutes in case there's a comment or a question. Somebody's got something just gnawing at you there that you'd like to bring out before we close. I know that's a lot of of stuff to digest. No? Well, then will you stand with me, please?